0: Welcome to episode 17 of the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nichol. This is part two of the gear review deep dive for everything that I used on my 2021 solo mountain goat hunt. So first of all, if you could like, comment, share, subscribe, I would greatly appreciate it, particularly on podcasting platforms. If you could leave a review, a five-star ranking, or even write a short little blurb. It would be very helpful in helping the podcast climb up the ranks. I've been very appreciative so far, and we've had really good results with people leaving reviews. So again, thank you very much for that. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, jay at mindfulhunter.com, Instagram, mindful underscore hunter, YouTube, mindfulhunter, any of the above work perfectly fine. So on part one of the gear review, deep dive, we got into clothing, sleep system, shelter, and the pack. This week, we're going to do everything else, all the little odds and ends, bits and bobs, all that kind of stuff. And I almost think there's a little bit more value in this week because everyone talks about those things on on part one quite frequently. And I'm hoping to shed some light on like the lesser known components that people don't tend to talk about as much. And as always, we're going to start out with the typical sections that we normally do. So let's dive right into it with a brief update on how training has been going. So once I switched my schedule to four days lifting and two days hiking, I've, uh, it was one of the best decisions I, I could have made, and I haven't really seen a reduction in hypertrophy or strength increase from four days a week. In fact, it might even be a little bit better And as opposed to giving a real detailed training update this week, because not a whole lot has changed since last week, I wanted to have a light discussion on periodization. Because the one thing I've noticed since coming back from the goat hunt is how passionate I am about lifting again and about how that's translated into just way more focus and drive and benefit from the sessions that I've been having. Like I am just an animal in there. And that was not the case in January. I'll admit I was burnt out. I was just showing up and phoning it in, and because of a couple injuries, because of how how long I've been training consistently, like I just didn't have much gas in the tank. And that when when I felt that passion again after the goat hunt, I realized I'd kind of accidentally done something that I should have been doing on purpose. So what is periodization? At its most simple, it is simply assigning different protocols for particular periods of time, the simplest manifestation of this would be like an AB protocol. Like I'm going to lift heavy for one week, light for one week, heavy for one week, light for one week. And by periodizing that, you're allowing your CNS to refresh and I could get into it. That's not a particularly good example, but you can see how by assigning different protocols to different time periods, you can manipulate certain factors and produce different results depending on what your outcomes are. When you get into like Olympic caliber weightlifters and stuff, they have incredibly complex periodization schedules because these guys are trying to up their one rep max by like quarter pounds. And it might take them two months to do that. And they're going to ramp up and then ramp down and then do mini ramps and then longer ramps. And they're going to have like macro periodization coupled with micro periodization. And it gets horribly complicated for our purposes. I just want, I want us to think about it like this. If you do the exact same thing for a really long time, you're not only going to burn out psychologically, you're going to burn out physically because we need to allow things to refresh, which doesn't mean we have to stop doing what we're doing, but it means we should switch it up a little bit. And so I think I'm going to try and go in three month sprints, and then I'm going to have like one month deloads where I focus on other things. This also happens to work really well with my hunting schedule. Cause I usually get a major hunt in every three to four months. And that was kind of what I did by accident here, you know, for the month of the second half of January and the first half of February, I really trimmed down on my weightlifting and focused more on the hiking. So, yeah, just the ba- I just wanted to share the basic concept of periodization and and share that while having done it accidentally, it still produced a really good benefit for me because I was almost a little bit worried coming back from the goat hunt. I was like, if it's still as much of a grind as it was for me before I left, this is going to be a problem. Like, where am I going to find the joy in it again? And I, yeah, I just simply realized I was a little bit burnt out, both physically and emotionally. And having taken a break, gotten away and focusing on other activities for a while, I really feel a renewed sense of of drive and dedication. So have a look at your own training schedule and see where you can kind of slot that in. Maybe take a month and and not go to the gym at all and just worry about hiking and maybe shooting your bow or shooting your rifle and use that time to focus on other things You're not going to lose any major gains in a month. It's just not going to happen. We're not built that way. I mean, if you feel like you do shrink down a little bit, it's going to pop back on super quick once you get back into your regular lifting schedule. So other than that, no real details on the training. The one thing is that I have gone back to a, a more strict interpretation of progressive overload. So when I'm burnt out or when I... In January, when I was just kind of nursing some injuries, I went back to a more like classical rep set scheme, like a Jay Cutler style, four sets, eight to 12 reps per set, lots of volume, but none of that deep intensity that progressive overload requires. And now that I'm feeling 100% again, the system that I have found works best for me to both increase strength and hypertrophy at the same time is like, a bunch of warm-up sets, anywhere from three to five, depending on how heavy I'm going, and then two working sets at the top. So let's take hack squat, for example. I'm gonna do 10 to 12 reps with two plates, six to eight reps with three plates, four to six reps with four plates, and then I'm gonna get to my working set, which would be five plates per side. That's what it was this week, and I wanted 15 reps. And the goal is not is to, and the goal is to conserve as much energy while laddering up the weight while still allowing yourself to be warmed up and ready for the big weight. That's why as I increase the weight, I decrease the reps. And once I get into this bulking cycle really deep and I'm up to like six, six and a half plates, I'll even start throwing on quarters and just going up by two reps at a time. Like I'll do two reps at four plates, two reps at four and a half, two reps at five, two reps at five and a half. Then when I get to six, I'll do my all out top set. After my all out top set, which this week was 15 reps at five plates, insanity, brutal. I then... So depending on how heavy the weight is, I'll either do a back offset or I'll do the exact same weight. And because I was able to get 15 good reps without a spot, my buddy Ditto Shack was there had I needed it, but I was able to crank them all out and he didn't have to touch the bar. I, I did five plates again, and that time I got 10 reps. So really, as far as I'm concerned, in my kind of training logging, I only did two sets of hack squats, I did one set at five plates for 15 reps and one set at five plates for 10 reps. And both of those were to complete failure. I was unable to do a half a rep more. Like that was it. I was fucked. And, and I apply that to, to basically all of my training. Now, that being said, and I don't want to get too complicated here. I really only use that in a super strict format to the first two or three major lifts per body part. Like for back, it is um, pull-ups, like wide grip pull-ups and a chest supported T-bar row. Those are my big lifts. I record my numbers. I try and beat the log book every week. And I do two major working sets, a top set and a back off set. As I get further into the workout and my CNS kind of burns out, I switch to a more volume-based approach. I could get into the science why, but there's certain kind of there's certain mechanisms within your body that grow muscle through progressive overload, and then there's certain mechanisms within your body that grow through a more like sarcoplasmic or or fat myofascial stretching component, which is a more pump-based approach. They're both right. So I start the workout with the heavyweight progressive overload stuff. And I end the workout with the more high volume pump-based stuff where I'm going to do like four to six sets, 12 to 15 reps, like, and really kind of crank it out and get the blood kind of crammed into the muscles. And I like to combine those. That for me has turned out to be the most effective structure for a workout that I've ever found. It is incredibly taxing psychologically and physically. So that's why I really only employ it for two to three month bursts when I'm feeling my absolute best. Then once I start to burn out, I drop things back a little bit because I either tend to get hurt or because I can't be a logbook. I take it hard psychologically and it ruins my day. There's a bunch of reasons. But anyways, I don't want to spend too much time on that. That's where I'm at right now. I'm beating the logbook every week. I'm still not back above my PRs from last fall, but that's how it happens. You know, two steps forward, one step back. I just took my one step back. Now it's time to take my two steps forward. Diet is essentially the same. I've cranked everything up just a little bit, an extra 10 or 20 grams of rice at each meal, and an extra 10 grams of cream of rice in the morning. Other than that, everything is like pretty much steady. Supplements have been ramped up and now they'll stay steady at where they are until the end of this bulking cycle. So, that's where we're at with that. Gonna skip the rest of this of the kind of opening intro sections this week and dive right into the gear review. One quick note I wanted to make on last week because I used the term the Kelvin down hoodie with windstopper hoodie. And somebody got back in touch with me and said, oh, I have that, but I have the synthetic one. I need to clarify something. Sitka does not make any pure down products anymore. They use a product that I believe is 30% down and 70% Primaloft aloft." And the whole concept is the, synthet- the, the, the synthetic insulation offers structure so that moisture doesn't crush the down. I got into this last week, but anytime you see a product referenced on Sitka and they call it a down product, it is this synthetic hybrid kind of down material that they're talking about. They, they, they So that so when somebody said, I have the synthetic one, I was like, well, that's the same one. It's just, they call it down, but it it is also partially synthetic. So I just want to clear that up. Okay, first thing we're going to get into this week that I actually meant to get into last week but forgot was gloves. I'm a huge glove nerd and I was very, I don't know how to put this, like concerned or I spent a lot of time and energy thinking about the gloves that I was going to take on this hunt. So my main two glove systems were the Sitka Stormfront GTX and the Sitka Blizzard GTX. So this, both of these are like a three-in-one system. So they're like a shell and a liner. And the reason it's called three-in-one is that you can run the shell, you can run the liner, or you can run the shell and the liner. I'm gonna start off with this Stormfront GTX. Um, there are uh, comparable gloves from Outdoor Research and Black Diamond. And I think the only thing lacking in the Sitka ones compared to those, well, there's two main differences. There's zero insulation in the liner from the Sitka ones. So they are, I think it's the Outdoor Research Altis. I actually have them just sitting right over there. They have insulation in the liner and in the shell. They are going to be good to a colder temperature than the Stormfront GTX. The Stormfront GTX has zero insulation in the shell. I kind of like this though, because then there's nothing to get wet in the shell. And I'm going to get into why that's important in a moment. So they're not quite as warm as their counterparts from companies like Black Diamond and Outdoor Research. They're also not quite as long. Like, I don't know if you'd call it a gauntlet or what you would, but the part of the glove that comes up and over your wrist is much shorter on the Stormfront GTX. Now, at first, I had concerns that a bunch of snow was going to fall in there, but that never actually ended up happening. And I'm still not hundred percent sure where I stand on it. I think if you made me choose, I would want a slightly longer gauntlet or whatever, again, whatever you want to call it, that part that comes up the wrist, just because I feel like it offers a little more security um, and it allows you to tighten it up and it reduces the likelihood of things getting down in there. But I have to say, if I'm totally honest, I didn't notice any detriment from, from it being shorter, which A, allows it to be lighter. And it also kind of makes it a little bit easier to get on and off. Overall construction was outstanding. Um, the, The waterproof component of the shell, fantastic. The liner is what really surprised me. Now I'm gonna preface this and say like I was only in, it was like minus 10 most days. It was not super cold. You know, the week before I was there, it was, you know, low minus 20s, high minus 30s. That would have been crazy. Now, what was something very interesting about the liner, and I think it's a combination. I almost want to say there's some neoprene in it. I looked up the specs and it doesn't say, it doesn't mention that there's part neoprene, but it's basically a two-stage fleece. So you have, if you just looked at it as fabric, one side of the fleece would be like your like Burberry fleece or your 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 uh it's like a rough material, it looks almost shaggy. And then the other side is like a very smooth, looks just like neoprene, smooth black surface. And they've done a really interesting thing where the palm is flipped one way and the back of the hand is flipped the other way. Um, so you have fuzzy fleece on half your hand and smooth neoprene like polyester fleece on the other part of your hand. The thing of particular note about these liners is that I was shocked how good they were at keeping my hands warm when they were wet, which is like, okay, well, why are you wearing wet gloves? So I made a mistake. I wore the liners inside the shells for like the first half of the first day. And they were so warm that I basically just sweat out the liners and I didn't want to move to my second liners yet. So I just kept wearing them, but took the shells off. What I should have done from the outset was taking the shells off and only run the liners or put a much thinner liner. And this is what I did later on in the hunt. I had like a, just next to skin Merino liner, um, that I got from MEC for like 15 bucks, super awesome glove for 15 bucks. Um, And I ran that inside the Stormfront GTX shell. And for those temperatures at minus 10, that was the perfect solution because I would have the waterproof capability of the shell when I fell over and my hands dunked into the snow. But because the liner was a little bit lighter, my hands wouldn't sweat out. However... I want to go back and spend a little bit of time discussing this liner. And again, I was trying to have a conversation with John Barklow, but his schedule just didn't permit it before this podcast because I actually wanted to get some more information about this because I was quite shocked at how good the insulation components were of this material in the cold when they were wet. So all that being said, Stormfront GTX for me are a strong buy. Really awesome gloves real quickly the blizzard gtx so these are uh, the these actually have like a synthetic insulation in the liner um and they're rated i would imagine 5 or 10 degrees celsius more than the stormfront gtx and so my strategy was the storm fronts were like my daily drivers that's what i wore kind of at all times with or without the shell with or without the liner coupled with the merino liners that i brought And, but then as soon as I got to wherever I was, like if I was going to glass or sit and have lunch and I would take off the storm fronts and I'd put on the blizzard GTX, um, because they were dry or super toasty because they had the insulation in the liner and that system worked out really well. I don't think it was quite cold enough to necessitate both gloves. I can honestly say there was only two or three situations when I was like in dire need of the blizzards when I was like, I would get to someplace glassing and I would just be freezing cold and I would put those, the my hands would be freezing cold and I would put those blizzards on and it would toast them right up and I was super grateful. But I, in retrospect, I could have gotten away without those. However, I had no way of knowing exactly what the temperatures were gonna do. So I still, it was not a mistake to bring them, I guess is how I would sum that up best. Anyways, both those gloves, strong buy. If you only got cash for one, by the storm fronts. I'm going to talk about optics real quickly, but to be honest, because the hunt evolved in a way that I wasn't expecting, I really didn't get to use my optics as much as I thought. I thought it was going to be more like a get to a big glassing knob and pick apart a whole bunch of stuff that was 2 miles away. That was not the case. The stuff I was looking at was like 8 to 900 yards away and I usually just had my binos out, not on a tripod, and I was looking at smaller sections for 30 to 45 seconds while walking past. And so I I definitely didn't get to take full advantage of the power of the glass that I brought. I had the Zeiss Victory SF 10x42s, and I had the Zeiss Harpia 95 millimeter. I run the Outdoorsman's tripod system. I took my compact medium with the extension post on this particular hunt, That whole system works flawlessly. I love it. I love Outdoorsman's. I love Zeiss. I've talked about all of that gear in those companies multiple times before. So I'm not going to waste your time here. One thing I don't know if I've touched on is the fact that I use an Alaskan Guide Creations Kiss Cub Max Bino Harness. And I love the thing. And I get it. The trend lately is these like minimalistic Bino Harnesses, which if that floats your boat, go to it. I love the fact that I can carry like everything but the kitchen sink on my chest in one bag. I don't have a separate thing for my range finder. It fits right in the front. There's a little compartment underneath where the binos go, a little zipper compartment where I fit like extra wind checker and an extra knife and a Leatherman and a bunch of like just weird stuff. Um, love that bino harness. I, it's four years old and it was some of the threading is starting to give give away in one location. I'm like, Half of me wants to just get it fixed at the seamstress and the other half of me, because I'm just a gear nerd, I want to buy another one just to try it out. So we'll see. I may pick up a new bino harness for the sheep hunt, but in the same breath, I feel like there's a lot of luck rubbed onto this one. So anyways, we'll we'll see how that goes. One note I'm going to make on glassing. I did not anticipate how wet everything was going to be constantly to the point where my bino harness was just like soaked through by the end of day one. And the harness just stayed soaking wet the entire time to the point where I would clean binos off. I would stick them inside. I could pull them out two minutes later and they would be covered in moisture again and have to wipe them again. And after the end of the first day, you're running it. You just have nothing left dry to wipe your glass with. What I'm going to do next time because I bought all these mini Ziploc bags on Amazon is I'm going to put literally like three or four of those tiny lens cloths inside those Ziploc bags and just save like one per day. So at least I've always got one dry one to start the day out with and I'm going to bring more of the disposable lens wipe. I know they're probably environmentally not the best thing in the world but I had a half a dozen of them with me and they worked better than anything. And for anybody that doesn't know, the reason they're working so well is that there's usually some type of isopropyl alcohol or something in there, which causes the liquid to evaporate incredibly quickly. So it feels weird that you're wiping a wet bino with a wet nap type material and somehow it winds up perfectly dry and clear, but that's why. Out of everything I brought, those worked the best. But I think it would be irresponsible to just bring like a hundred of those and have all these wrappers from these individually wrapped lens cloths everywhere. So I would I would do a hybrid approach. Again, just like I said, I would take one ziplocked lens cloth per day, and then maybe 20 of the disposable ones so that you could use a combination of each throughout the day. Lens class, lens cloth for the first half of the day, disposable wipes for the second half of the day. But that was a big takeaway for me. I was not expecting that. The last Sportiva Nepal GTX boots. Again, I've talked pretty extensively about these before. I can't say enough good things about them. They worked perfectly. I got zero hot spots. I had zero problems. Once I'd taken a couple booters in the creek, they stayed wet. There was nothing I could do about it because of the high humidity and cold temperatures. However, For the first day and a half, when I hadn't taken a booter, the snow alone was not penetrating them. And I had dry feet. Like I woke up the morning of day two and put on dry boots. It was once I kind of took a couple dunks in the creek that I just couldn't recover from them. So again, strong buy recommendation on those. The one caveat is anticipate an incredibly long break-in period. And by that, what I mean is 75 to 100 miles I bet you I hiked in those things 20 times at four miles a trip before I was like, okay, these are perfect now. And I think that's a testament to their rigidity and stability. It, 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 that's not a side effect. That's the effect. That's what a true mountaineering boot should take in order to mold to your foot. If it happens much faster than that, the boot is too soft and your, your, the durability is going to be shit or the support and stability is going to be shit. Essentially, strong buy on those as well. They're crazy expensive, but highly recommend them. Let's talk about the Whoop versus the Apple Watch. The Whoop is shit for backcountry purposes. Uh, Huge surprise when you are not in Wi Fi or cellular, uh, your Whoop doesn't talk, doesn't really talk to your phone. It's insanity. It will only store three days of data. And it's like, it's Bluetooth connected to my phone. Why on God's green earth are you not just transmitting the data to the phone and then processing it when I get back into cellular reception? Like what a shit design. Um, Super disappointed. And for that reason alone, I took my whoop off as soon as I got back and I've never put it back on. I quit. I'm done. Fuck the whoop really disappointed. They they should have had that stuff like way front and center. Like these are endurance athletes y- using this. They must assume that people are going to be going into the backcountry and want to measure performance. It just makes zero sense to me. The one explanation that my buddy gave, because they're using a proprietary algorithm, perhaps they're worried that if they put it on the phone, people would be able to see it. Fair enough, I get that. I still don't understand why you couldn't just store the data on the phone. Okay, I would like to see what my caloric expenditure is every day, but failing that, at least once I get back to town, you could show me the whole week. You know, that would be a second best alternative. Maybe I would still use the product if that was an option, but it's not. You get three days, that's it. So gone for six and I only had data for three, super pissed. Um, Yeah, I won't be using the whoop again. Black diamond trail, ergo cork, trekking poles. Holy shit, do I love these things. Again, I've had these guys going on four years and I initially had an earlier model where the clamps that hold the extensions in place just kept failing And they just would never get tight enough. As soon as I leaned on them, they would just shorten and compress. And I had a bunch of back and forth with Black Diamond. Gotta say, I've had a few warranty issues with Black Diamond stuff, and they're always phenomenal to deal with. They just send you new shit. You don't send in the old shit. It's a great process. Awesome company to deal with. And once I got sorted out with the new model, which they shipped to me for free, no extra charge, covered shipping, the whole nine yards, um, I'm in love with these things. And I was blown away. Like I beat the shit out of these, especially considering with the 340 pounds between me and my pack, multiple times I would fall over in the snow. And the only way to get up would be to put the two trekking poles parallel, horizontally, grab them in the middle and push down on the snow and kind of like wedge the two ends of the poles against something with more stability and then kind of push my body weight up. And I was just waiting for these things to snap in the middle. I was like, this is not good. Like, you know, this is not what what these things are designed for at all. Um, And they held up, man. They didn't even budge. I never had a problem with the length shortening. I never had a problem with anything cracking. I did this really cool thing where I, I mounted a mountain bike handlebar GoPro mount on the end of my trekking pole. So I had a GoPro basically like on an extended stick the whole trip and that worked super good. So that's a big tip for any of you GoPro guys out there. I don't think I really need to talk about my rifle. I didn't have a chance to shoot it. For those of you that are curious, Tika T3X 300 Mag with a Javelin Pro Hunt bipod. Up top is a Vortex Viper PST Gen 2 3 to 15 by 44 uh, in MRAD, um, and I was shooting a Hornady precision Hunter, 200 grain ELDX bullets, which obviously I didn't get to shoot any of. The one thing that is interesting is I don't know how many people run a gun bearer system. I know mystery ranch has one. I think stone glacier has one. I run the Kefaru one and it is essentially a kind of pouch that hangs off your hip belt that you put the, the, the butt of the gun into. And then there's a little strap, a clip and a strap on your shoulder strap that you wrap around kind of the end of the barrel. And it allows you to carry the gun at your side vertically as opposed to on the back of your pack. And it gives you quick draw access to your rifle while keeping it hands-free. Total game changer. I love the Kafaru Gun Bearer and they do have a model to go on non kafaru backpacks. I actually have two of these. I have one that I initially bought for my Outdoorsman's Long Range Optics backpack. And then I have a second one that I bought when I bought my fulcrum because it's a native design and it fits, it's got a little bit more stability. It essentially just has these clips that go in the moly webbing of the hip belt. Works phenomenal. Love it. I'm even kind of trying to figure out a way to use it for my bow. I've seen somebody jury rig this thing where they put the one cam down in that little pouch and then they had a quick release kind of carabiner thing up top, which would be great because. The the biggest pain in the ass when you're bow hunting is that you kind of always have a bow in one hand. So carrying trekking poles doesn't really work. And every time you go to glass something, you have to prop your bow up and it just gets to be a pain in the ass. And if I could have it readily accessible, but still hands-free, that'd be the kind of like holy grail situation to find. So that, I recommend the Kefaru Gun Bearer, super cool. I mentioned that I brought the Exped Hyperlate Winter Down Mat. And I also recommend mentioned that I brought the thermolet thermal rest Z light kind of closed cell foam pad to go underneath. Let's just talk about that for a second. A, I bought a full size pad and cut a quarter of it off. One, I can use that quarter as just a bum pad moving forward on other hunts. And two, it saved me weight. I didn't need the whole thing. Cause I actually wasn't bringing it for a sleeping pad. I was bringing it for the, the potential situation that I would need to lie prone taking a shot. And I was given advice from several people, especially if you had to lay there for a while, laying in the snow, you're gonna get really cold and shaky and it's gonna make um, pulling off a shot incredibly difficult. So I brought this Z-Lite and then it doubled up as a secondary pad. Highly recommend this thing, man. Kept it strapped to the outside of my backpack the whole time shook off any moisture that got onto it. It doesn't really absorb moisture. It made a great seat when I sat down to glass because I could fold it up two or three times. So it was like very insulated against the cold. Anyways, I found that thermorest a great addition at minimal compromise from weight. Didn't take up any room in the bag because again, I was able to strap it on the outside. So especially on a winter hunt, I would highly recommend bringing something like this again in the future. And again, the backup benefit is that if it gets crazy cold, you've got this additional layer that's going to add, you know, one to three points of our value to your sleep system. So yeah, highly recommend it. Let's see what else I brought here. smoking a bottle, my kill kit. I brought a pen, didn't use it once. Going to be honest with you, knowing what I know about where the water came from, I was drinking from that river the entire time with zero problems. Spent a lot of time in the mountains in British Columbia. And when you're that close to a glacier, just drink the shit. I do. I've never had a problem. Um, and I was melting a lot of snow. So, and I've never worried about any issues with snow either, especially since it was literally like the snow that fell yesterday. So never had to use water purification of any kind. Brought, uh, an InReach. I, I, I love the in-reach. I can't say enough good things about it. Other people are bringing this other texting thing, this Volio. My only problem is it doesn't offer any like a benefit of like GPS. The thing about the in-reach is that if my phone dies, I still have the ability to locate myself and locate the, the path out. That Volio thing doesn't really offer that. So it's like, now do I also have to carry a third device? Like, so I have a backup navigation tool. I don't understand why you just wouldn't use the device that gives you a GPS and Satellite communication capabilities, but maybe I'm missing something. And if you if you've got that thing and you like it, let me know um, why. Took my iPhone iPhone 12 Pro Max. A lot of the pictures I've been posting because I thought I nuked my Sony A7 III. A lot of the pictures that I took on this hunt were with the iPhone, and it takes incredible pictures. Especially if there's good lighting. Like if you've got sun shining on a mountain off in the distance, iPhone knocks that shit out of the park. Super, super cool. Um, MSR reactor. This was my first time with the reactor. I loved it. I needed something that was going to stand up to cold temperatures. And there is a pressure regulator in the burner of the MSR reactor. The vast majority of canister scoves don't have that. So, they don't operate as well at elevation or at cold temperatures. It worked flawlessly. The one thing I noted, because it was cold, once my canisters got to like 10 to 15%, they were useless. They would produce, the pressure was so low in the can at that point from the temperature that the flame they would produce was just useless. So, take that into account. Take at least 15% more fuel than you think. I took three. 227 gram canisters. Planning on one canister every other day. I came out with one full canister. If I hadn't have had access to the river and I was melting snow totally, that's what I budgeted for. Worst case scenario, I would have went through all three perfectly. So use that as like a rough estimate. If you're gonna be melting snow for fluid, for water to drink, then... It took about a 227 gram canister every other day. I had two headlamps, the old Black Diamond Revolt and the new Black Diamond Revolt 350. I love these things. I don't hear people talking about them very often. They're USB chargeable, which to me, and I've said this on other podcasts, I do not understand why you would only have like alkaline batteries for your... You never know how full those batteries are. You always have to carry backup batteries to be responsible. You'd have to have at least like two sets of backup. it just makes no sense to me. Whereas when you carry a USB chargeable headlamp, yes, they don't last quite as long, but I just charge it up every night. I already have two large USB power banks with me and I just stick my headlamp in for, you know, 20, 30 minutes at the end of every night and boom, it's full for the next morning and I never worry about it. And you don't need to do that. I can get three, four days out of those suckers, no problem. The 350 definitely sucks juice a little bit worse than the old one, but I mean, come on, that's to be expected, right? It's, it's, it's got at least a hundred more lumens when it's on bright mode. I had a variety of little repair kits as well. Um, I didn't have to use any of them. I had a decent first aid kit. I had, I got a little bit of infection under one nail. I tend to always get like a hangnail and then it gets infected when I'm on a hunt. It's the weirdest thing. And my trick for that is to just douse that finger in polysporin and then wrap it up in duct tape for two or three days. (laughs) And then, I don't know, just that combination seems to kill what's ever in there and then it's fine. And I've graduated, instead of using duct tape, I use like the white athletic tape. I actually have a lighter around here somewhere that's covered in it. Um, and that worked perfectly. So I did an earlier podcast on my first aid kit and my possibles pouch. So I'm not going to get into it here because there's like 20 or 30 things each. The one thing I will note when I was talking about possible pouch design, like what you pick to go in your possibles pouch. One of the factors that I noted was if you don't use it for a couple of trips, take it out. I had a like a six foot Hank of Dyneema cord, which is this crazy, uber thin, crazy, strong, alien, like rope material. It's not even rope. It's like a thread that's been in my back, my possibles pouch for probably four years. I swear to God, I've never used this shit, but because it's so small, I just always left it in there. Then on this trip, my snowshoe breaks you can watch it in the video i'll also i'll comment on the snowshoes in a couple of minutes and at the end in order to get my way out i looked at i could only fix like the worst break so i actually took a tent peg duct taped it on to the snowshoe across the break just to hold it and then i took the dyneema cord and was like super surgical about wrapping this thing around crazy tight, lots of knots. And then I'd put duct tape over top of all that and it worked flawlessly. I was shocked. It lasted the whole hike out. It never budged. It offered rigid stability to the snowshoe. I was crazy impressed at how well it worked. Paracord would not have worked because there's too much stretch in paracord. So as tight as I could have gotten the paracord As soon as it got super wet in the snow and the snowshoe started to kind of wiggle around, it just would have worked its way so it wouldn't have been as tight. Whereas the Dyneema, there's zero stretch to Dyneema cord. And when it went on tight, it stayed on tight. And I did a couple of those like you tie a loop and then you come back at it from the reverse and go through the loop and pull it back around. I'm doing a shitty job of explaining but it's a way to ensure like a rope or a tie is insanely tight, and I did that a couple times throughout the process, and it worked exceptionally well. So, I get maybe the moral of the story: I'm telling everybody go buy a, a six to ten foot chunk of Dyneema cord. It costs like three bucks, and it it's just it fits one of those holes in your possible pouch that nothing else really fits. And I was super impressed, and I actually made a note in my phone that I was like. I need to go buy more of this from Z-Packs because z is a site that focuses almost exclusively on Cuban fiber or Dyneema components. They make tents, tarps, ropes, cables, all kinds of shit, backpacks, super cool gear. Um, and I made a note in my back in my phone that I had to go to the website and buy some more because otherwise I'm going to go to get ready for my next hunt and I'm not going to have any. So that was super beneficial. On that note, Let's talk about the snowshoes. I went in with MSR lightning ascents before this hunt. I contacted multiple people. There's almost unanimous, uh, consensus in the industry that these are the best snowshoes money can buy. So I bought them and I destroyed them completely, uh, almost by day two, um, yeah, they are completely unusable. I have to ship them back to MSR right now. I've looked around since I got back. There's no other snowshoes that are better. There's some that look like they might be stronger. The problem is I was doing so much hill climbing and so much aggressive snowshoeing that you need an incredibly aggressive platform. You need a snowshoe that's designed to go uphill and yeah, be very aggressive in, in, in how it supports you and, and the traction that it offers and... A lot of these other ones that look like they might be a little bit stronger, just look like they're tubular designs. They don't really have any claws on the bottom. I'm like, there's no way I would get where I was going. Like, there was times where I was, like, going straight up. Like, it was crazy. So, do I think the snowsuit shoes are shit? I do not. Would I recommend buying them? I would. Uh, And here's why. One, it was 340 pounds between me and the pack. There are reasonable limits to all pieces of gear i feel that it's fair to say i exceeded what you would call the reasonable limits on these snowshoes they weren't they're a hyperlight snowshoe they're not designed for dudes my size it's, they're just not and i'm okay with that that's it, that's a that's a fair limitation also the way they broke was incredibly favorable and i this is gonna this sounds like a kind of funny thing to say but they very slowly deteriorated in a way that left them extremely usable. It wasn't like I took a step and they just snapped and I was fucked. That didn't happen. They started to bend a little. I took note. I went a little bit easier. They kind of kept bending and then I used them more and then they bent and bent and then they finally broke in one place, but then because of the design, just because it was broken didn't mean that they failed catastrophically. Uh, you know, they started bending severely on day two. I hiked hard for another four days and then all the way out to the truck. And they still worked when I got to the truck. I mean, they're not pretty, but they worked. And I think MSR deserves a nod for building something that although didn't make it out unscathed, continued to deliver on its ability to to aid you through the circumstances. Whereas if they had just snapped in half one day and I just would have been completely shut down and would have had to turn around and that did not happen. So I don't want to rake them over the coals too badly. I did fill out the warranty return form. They did say that I can just send them back, but they haven't seen them. So I'm going to stick them in the box tomorrow and stick them in the mail. And then we'll kind of see what they say. Okay. Let's have a brief discussion about food. So here's everything I took in one go. So this would be one day, 50 grams whey isolate protein powder, peak refuel, mountain berry granola four Starbucks via Italian roast, one sweet and salty trail mix, one green belly meals, lunch, one honey stinger, honey waffle, one trail mix, one, Cliff blocks with caffeine, one Cliff Builder protein bars, one Peak refueled dinner, one sausage, and then I had a meal here because sometimes I I carry it in my lunch kit. All said, that was thirty five hundred calories. I'm guessing the sausage was three hundred calories, and I'm gonna be honest, that thing might be six or seven hundred. Like it was a shitload of fat in those sausages, man. Like I'm going to try and find a way to calculate that better. But let's just, for a conservative number, let's say it's 3,500 calories. Now, when I weighed it out, originally I thought it was like 1.9 pounds, but then I realized I was just adding up the weight of the food and I'd left out all the weight of the packaging. So once I put all the food in a gallon Ziploc bag, wrapped that up and put it on the scale, the entire thing weighed 2.2 pounds. So I was carrying... Seven days worth of food. I had one emergency day backup. So I had 15.4 pounds of food, 2.2 pounds per day, 3,500 calories per day. I busted my ass and I got to tell you, it was enough, man. I did not need more food than that. I've heard people go in and say they didn't bring enough food. I would like to offer some advice in regards to your carbohydrate and fat consumption. There's a couple general rules and people seem to forget these. Carbohydrates are, without a doubt, the best fuel when energy is required now. Hands down. I know a lot of people love fat and I know there's some studies that fat is a really good energy source and it is, but you do not, you do not oxidize fat the same way you do carbohydrates Carbohydrates contain glucose which gets converted into glycogen which goes into your muscles which is util- which is usable immediately fatty acid oxidization does not work like that it also requires oxidization okay you 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 need aerobic mechanisms in place to, receive the energy that fat contains. You do not need that for carbohydrates. That's why for like short sprint work and weightlifting, fat is useless. That's where keto diets can be used for things like marathons and endurance racing and stuff like that. And I think that's where people get this, I'm gonna use it for hunting. I think we do a lot more sprinting than you think. When I put that bag on and I'm going up that 20 meter little cliff face That is not similar to a marathon runner, and it is not similar to an endurance race. It's way more similar to a sprint. When the amount of energy your body requires exceeds the amount of oxygen you are able to deliver, you are in an anaerobic state. At that point, you can only only utilize glycogen as a fuel source. This matter is not up for debate. Any fat you have in your body is fucking useless. So I I would argue that carbohydrates need to be your primary fuel source on a hunt. Now you pay a penalty for that. Carbohydrates are only four grams, sorry, carbohydrates are only four calories per gram. Fat is nine calories per gram. So if we're trying to hit a high calorie per ounce ratio in our backpack, fat is the more favorable choice. However, I would argue from a performance perspective, Carbohydrates are the preferred choice. Now, here's the caveat. Fat slows digestion incredibly. For example, if you add olive oil to your meal, you will feel fuller longer. If you add egg yolks to your breakfast, you will feel fuller longer because it takes your body longer to digest fat. So one of the tricks I did with this sausage I never ate the whole sausage. For any of you don't know, I'm talking about these crazy bacon sausages that this Jewish deli makes around the corner from my house. They're like 60 or 70% fat. They have these giant chunks of white fat in them. Like when I'm not hunting, I almost find these sausages gross because they are so decadent. It's crazy. But when you're in the backcountry, busting your ass, you take a bite of one of these things and you just feel your body like absorb the fat. Like It's wild. My trick with these sausages is that I never sit down and eat the whole sausage. I end every snack or meal with a couple of bites of the sausage. And let me, let me tell you why. If you pour, like if you just ate raw sugar, your body is going to utilize as much of that sugar as it is currently available, as as its needs currently dictate in that moment. And then whatever's not needed right then, because it's a pure, simple carbohydrate, it is probably gonna be converted over into fat storage. Now, if you are to consume some fat with that sugar, and I'm using this as an extreme example, that is gonna slow down the actual digestion of the sugar itself, and it is gonna keep those carbohydrates available for a longer period of time in that like up on deck kind of energy storage mechanism. And the fat that you consume is going to give you the sensation of satiation longer. You're gonna feel full longer. So you're not gonna wanna snack again as soon. So if we're gonna talk about like principles of backpack nutrition design, I go for high carbohydrate, moderate protein, moderate fat. I try and have my protein either in the morning or at night in big boluses because protein also takes a long time to absorb. And there is a thing with glucogenesis, protein can be converted into glycogen if it absolutely has to be, but it's not the most efficient kind of energy mechanism. So I don't wanna have large bolus dose of protein in the middle of the day when I'm executing a lot of, Uh, rigorous activity, because then there's the chance that instead of that protein being used for muscle protein synthesis, it could be used as an energy source, which I don't want it to be. So I'll have moderate protein doses throughout the day, but like my big 50 gram protein shake or my big 50 gram protein meal, one's gonna be in the morning and one's gonna be at the night. I'm gonna consume carbohydrates moderately throughout the entire day, keeping my sugary stuff closer to the afternoon and my savory stuff closer to the morning. And then I'm gonna finish each meal with a little bit of fat. And then I'm gonna have a kind of bigger chunk of fat at the end of the night. My buddy, Backcountry Bloodline, who who will be on the podcast next week, we recorded it last week, he has a great tip where he takes pouches of coconut oil and he will dump them into the meal at the end of the night, like the mountain house or the peak refuel. I actually forgot to stop at the grocery store and pick some up, but that's what I'm going to try next time. So the trick for me, one last time, add a little bit of fat to each meal, but don't have fat as your primary fuel source, because I do not believe it is as efficient an energy delivery mechanism as carbohydrates are. And that was probably way more way more nutrition information than like anybody gives a shit about, but fuck it, there you go. Okay, I'm gonna have a quick look on my phone because I wrote a bunch of notes and I just wanna make sure that I'm not missing anything. The Stormfront rain pants I mentioned come with a nylon web belt. I took that out and replaced it with my stretchy arcade belt. I like it better. Um, I'd bring a handsaw next year a foldable pocket handsaw. I almost brought one this year and I took it out last minute. The only exception to that, because I was going to say it would have been handy to try and get some firewood, dry firewood, and it would have been handy to cut some bridges for when I was trying to make those crossings. However, I've also think for next year, I want to bring my Wiggy's waders because then I can just cross back and forth at will. If you haven't seen those, go look at my last year's elk hunt. I used them on the last video called solo missions and holy grails or something like that or hail mary solo mission that's what it's called they are essentially lightweight waders that come up to your waist one leg goes in each um they weigh 11 ounces you carry them in your backpack you get your river throw them on cross take them off they go on over your boots they're outstanding the one thing i forgot to mention nutritionally is this year i packed a kind of little ziploc bag full of vitamins like some fish oil, a multivitamin, some vitamin D. I've got an Instagram post with the exact contents, but I also packed a little Ziploc bag with greens powder and a little Ziploc bag with fiber. And I think specifically the greens and fiber, I would highly recommend doing. I would make a little shake with it in my Nalgene every night, I think you really miss out on a lot of micronutrients when you're in the backcountry, and the greens powder is good at that. And the fiber really helped keep me regular. You eat those dehydrated meals for any more than a few days in a row and your shit just turns into little bricks or little rabbit turds and it's just not pleasant. The fiber really kept the bowels moving properly. So I recommend doing that again. Cool thing about the Arcteryx Modus AR Long Johns, they have a small pocket right around the hip And it's not cumbersome and the zipper doesn't dig into you, but it was so cold my batteries wouldn't work for the GoPro and the big camera. And what I would do is I would keep two batteries in that long john pocket. And then when I took them out, they'd work for a good hour or two. And then I would just keep one out and one in and I would keep rotating them. Super handy. So for any of you film guys, those long johns have the additional benefit of I was calling it my little battery warmer pocket. I talked about this last week, but I just want to reiterate I'm going to move away from bringing the rain cover for the backpack and bring a sill tarp or a lightweight tarp instead because I think it's going to be a more useful option. All right, I am fairly certain that is all the gear that I brought that is worth discussing. If there's anything you think I forgot or if you have any additional questions or if you've been on a similar hunt and you see something that you could recommend that you think I would appreciate, please hit me up. I love it. Either drop a note below in the comments on YouTube, send me an email, hit me up on Instagram real quickly. J at mindfulhunter.com, mindful underscore hunter on Instagram. As always, I really appreciate you guys engaging with the content and the platform. So until next week, thanks for tuning in.